podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Good afternoon. Good all morning. I'm struggling to get my words out. Perhaps I'm a little bit anxious as though I'm serving for my first Grand Slam title, Josh. And perhaps I need to lean on a uh, sports psychologist such as yourself. Before uh, I start going off into a deep dive, though, on that, Josh, tell us a little bit about who you are. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you, John, for for having me. Really, really excited for uh, for our conversation today. Um, a little bit about me and uh, my background. Um, so I come from a, you know, I, I started playing tennis growing up, started playing a few other sports beforehand, started playing uh, basketball, baseball, you know, football, or as we call it in the U.S., soccer. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed all those sports. I was really into sports. I'd follow it. I would get the newspaper every morning and go right to the sports section. But um, none of those sports, you know, I, I didn't necessarily excel or I didn't necessarily take any of those sports super seriously in terms of my own playing. And then I found tennis and that sport click, clicked with me a little bit more. So started getting really into tennis, uh, maybe around 10, 11, 12 years old. Um, but I, I, I felt like I had maybe, you know, started the sport a little bit later than some of my peers. So I was around, you know, some people who it seemed like had all the talent, all the natural ability. But for some of these people, they weren't necessarily winning that much and started becoming clear that, you know, the mental side of the game had a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. And I definitely wasn't perfect either i'd get pretty frustrated with myself at times i'd you know be in high pressure you know more anxious moments and i yeah my, my, my game would suffer um so i yeah some of those early experiences um in, in certain ways led me to some of the work that i do today i i never actually spoke with anyone that you know does sports psychology but i did read a couple of books on the mental side of tennis books like winning ugly and the inner game of tennis um, and, and that sort of started the journey. And then I, you know, played, continued playing junior tournaments, high school tournaments. I played for my college team in the U S division three level. Um, after college, I got into coaching and coached at a number of different places. Um, at the club level, I coached at the university level division one for a couple of years. Um, I coached at the tennis hall of fame out in uh, Newport, Rhode Island, where they just had their ATP tournament a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, uh, and yeah, a few, uh, in 2019 or actually, yeah. So, and then, you know, really sometime I'd say towards the end of high school or, or during college sort of came to the conclusion that what I wanted to do long-term was work with athletes on the mental side of the game. So after college, I did a, a master's degree in, in sports psychology. Um, and you know, for a, for a long period of time, I was both coaching um, at, at different places and doing sports psychology. I had launched mm-hmm. my business and was doing that work on the side. And then um, about two years ago, decided to start, you know, to start doing it full time. So I work, you know, currently work with all different types of athletes um, of different sports. I was, John, I was talking to John before we, John, John and I were talking before we started those, you know, talking with a judo player before we before we met today. And, uh, you know, I, I work with athletes of different sports, but tennis is by far the biggest work with, you know, probably 50 or 60% of my, the athletes I work with are tennis players, but pe- people of all different ages, um, and levels, you know, so that, that ranges from, you know, really elite players, really, you know, higher level players, um, 
some college players, some, you know, junior players, some more recreational players, uh, really a big mix and try to, you know, help athletes build different mental skills that they can use in different situations that they'll be in on the court. So that's, that's a little bit about me and uh, happy to dive into this conversation. Yeah, Josh, you mentioned um, that perhaps you were not necessarily a, a fully rounded uh, psychological um, mammoth, if you like, in that, you know, you would get frustrated, you would feel anxious as well. But do you think that helps a little bit? I mean, some empathy when you're chatting to these these people that are having, you know, some psychological issues on court, for example. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I, I try to make the point that, yeah, I, I definitely wasn't perfect or well-rounded, you know, as I was getting into the sport either. I don't think most people are. Um, so I, I think, yeah, I think it definitely gives me some empathy. And I also try to, you know, when I'm working with, with athletes, I, you know, especially when I'm working with a tennis player that follows the sport professionally and I, I, you know, follow the sport professionally quite closely myself, both in terms of watching, you know, ATP WTA matches and, and attending quite a few of them as well. I see you have the, um, the badges in the back that the lanyards in the back from, from you attending uh, a number of tournaments as well. And I, I, I like to do the same. Maybe we can actually talk a little bit about that. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I like to make the point, you know, that when we watch the best players in the world as well, a lot of them go, go through these same sorts of things you know, a lot of the best players in the world. And I can think of plenty of examples on the ATP and WTA side of, you know, top five players, top 10 players, number one players in the world who felt nervous or anxious and you could see it where they talked about it, who got mm -hmm. frustrated. Maybe they broke a racket. Maybe they yelled at themselves. Maybe that frustration led to a drop in their performance. Um, you know, or they, they lost focus for a period of time. So I think, you know, I, I tried to normalize it, right. Rather than I think in the past in psychology, you know, there was a lot of stigma around it, especially with athletes, you know, a lot of athletes didn't want to open up and maybe talk to somebody or, or acknowledge that they were, you know, getting help in, in this area. But I think now there's more of a recognition that, Hey, this is an important part of performance. And if I, you know, I, I, I need to be doing some, you know, I need to be addressing this area of my game. And I think, yeah, seeing that these top players in the, you know, I can use myself as an example and I can use top players in the world as examples of, Hey, they're not perfect either. They're working on it as well. And, you know, and, and I think the fact that so many top players have opened up about number one, mental health, but also mental performance, more the side that I'm on in terms of how they're, you know, getting help and assistance in these areas and, and how it's benefited them. Josh, do you also focus a bit more on individual sports? You mentioned how you had a, a, a judo player and obviously, uh, you know, tennis is also your thing. Um, do you tend to focus more on, on, on players and people involved in individual sports or do you also do team sports too? It's a mix. It's a mix. I mean, I, I do work with a number of individual athletes in tennis and golf and judo and um, in rodeo and in a number of different sports, ice skating, um, but but also work with with uh, um, team athletes, you know, baseball, you know, football, um, basketball, all, all, all different sports. Also do some some work with groups and teams, um, but it's a lot more on, uh, you know, with with uh you know, 
individual athletes, so, but that could be on the, you know, within individual sports and within team sports. And I think there's, you know, I think there's a lot of overlap between sports, but definitely some, some key differences as well, especially, you know, between individual sports and, and team sports. I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges in tennis is that it's just you out there, right? It's, it's just you out there. And yes, at the professional level, now we have some coaching that's allowed and, you know, maybe in, you know, junior tournaments or USTA tournaments, you have, the opportunity here and there to, um, to, to, to get some coaching, but generally it is just you. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges about, about a sport like tennis. Yeah. Um, I often think about changeovers and, and the 90 or 60 seconds between games and just what's going through a player's mind, particularly as they're about to serve out their biggest match of their career. And I think that's sort of, where I'd certainly, in terms of tennis at least, that's where I'd like to begin because I think the big difference where you've got tennis compared to certainly team sports anyway, and and pretty much a lot of individual sports too, there's no clock. There's no clock to help you. In a a football match, for example, or soccer, you can be be very nervous, but first of all, you've got 10 teammates, and even just them being nervous may help you a little bit, you know? I heard I've heard soccer players before going, oh, he's nervous, too. But actually, that made me feel a bit better. And in, in tennis, of course, you have no clock to help you. So there's, you can't waste time. You can't kill and run down that clock. As nervous as you are, Josh, you can still run down a clock if you like. You know, perhaps even in boxing, you can sort of hide a bit and, and avoid and time waste and blah, blah, blah. In in tennis we're still waiting for you to stop bouncing that ball and, and get the serve over the line, if you like. Um, Josh, how would you approach that key element to psychology if, if I was struggling, for example, in that moment? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think it's a great question. I think recognizing that, yes, as you said, there's no clock, and I think it's one of the only sports that, that that's the case in. Um, and, yeah, recognizing that, closing out a match can be really difficult. And as I said, we, we see that with the top players in the world and we see that with adult players and, you know, junior players at the, at the club level, Um, you know, people that aren't playing on, you know, playing on TV. And, and, you know, I think it's, it's a, it's a big challenge. I, I would say some of the ways that I work with athletes to, you know, respond to these sorts of situations is number one, to have a game plan you know, you feeling like you have a game plan, you being really clear about what sorts of patterns you use best, um, you know, how, what's been working throughout the match to get me to this point where I'm serving at five, four in the third set. Um, you know, why am I in this position and, and what patterns have been working best to get me into this position? So being really clear about that. Um, one area I work, uh, a lot with tennis players on is the in-between point routine. Um, you know, one point ends and according to the rules, generally you have about 20 seconds before the next point starts. So I think most time, most of the time, you know, maybe in, unless somebody has thought about this or unless somebody has trained in this area, they're not necessarily maximizing that 20 or so seconds. They're being critical of themselves. They're upset about the last point. They're thinking back to three or four games ago when their opponent made a line call that they disagreed with and they think that they're cheating. Um, And there's a lot of thoughts going through their head. So I think trying to have a system that they can use in between points 
um, is the best way to put one point behind them, reset, and then really try to refocus and really have a game plan going into the next point. And I think that's something that we want to be doing in general, but I think especially at the end of a match, you know, when you're serving for a match or when you're in a tiebreaker or in big points, having a system gives yourself some specific things to do rather than letting your thoughts start to really run wild in those moments. Do you think, um, because when you talk about routines between points, there's one player probably more than most that springs to mind. And with, with Nadal, Rafa Nadal, um, he has this very strict and obvious routine and he's been asked about it many times, but he has emphasized and over and over again, that it's nothing to do with superstition. He's not a superstitious person. He doesn't think that by, by breaking the routine that he will necessarily have a greater or lesser chance of winning the next point. But as you highlighted, it's just a sort of to stay in the moment sort of thing. Um, he has sort of developed that over the, over the sort of two decades in professional uh, tennis. I don't know if somebody said, not necessarily specifically, but maybe hint, hinted at what you just said, which is just have a routine between points. And maybe he's taken that to the nth degree. I, I think it's very possible. I think, yeah, when you look at him, he has a lot of, there's a lot of visual things that are very clear about what he's doing. He touches his his face and his ears and everything. He's adjusting his shorts. He's, uh, you know, he's doing a lot, but it's, it, there's a method behind it. He's, he does it all and it makes him, it gives him a certain feeling of calmness and security, you know, going into that next point. And you see how he adjusts his water bottles, you know, next to his bench and, and things like that as well. And I think, yeah, you know, when it relates to other players, you know, whether these are, professional players, whether these are non-professional players, um, you know, coming up with a system that works for you is, is key. And, you know, I think there's a lot of trial and error that goes into that, you know, over time, you know, I think there's, there's certain maybe guidelines and certain things that can help you, you know, help a player set it up, but then ultimately it's up to you to figure out really what works best. And I think, you know, somebody like him, he has, you know, obviously had a fantastic career with, you know, 22, uh, Grand Slam titles, you know, has had a lot of reinforcement about, okay, I've done this and this has worked well, so maybe I should continue doing it. Where maybe the player who's, you know, playing in Germany or, or in the US um, and has had some ups and downs, you know, maybe they're, they are spending more time trying to figure out what works best for them in between points. But I think he has a very clear, you know, a, 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 a very visible routine that we can see from the outside, but what we don't see is what, what's necessarily going through his head. And I think that that mental piece of the routine is, is, you know, is critical as well. I think another player that, that I think of when I think about routines is Maria Sharapova in terms okay. of, you know, what she, you know, she was known for sort of playing with her strings in between points or adjusting them and sort of turning her back to the court in between points. And, you know, I, I think there's, there's not one system or one method that works for everybody, but I think it has to have the element of recognizing that last point. Cause I think a lot of times people try to ignore the last point, especially if maybe it was a double fault or, you know, a bad miss. So let's recognize what happened. Let's have a way to reset, maybe using our breath to try to reset and put it behind us. And then let's really try to refocus and the next point, have a clear plan for it before we start to get into you know, that next point and bouncing the ball and, and really getting started with, with that next point. 
Josh, we've spoken about the micro element to the to the support, but there are there are sort of two or three big sort of psychological questions for me. I think I've kind of uh, asked one of them at least is that sort of the moment of of trying to close it out or even just being anxious on a particular point. But there are sort of bigger picture ones. Uh, I I look at the sort of next bigger picture one, if you like, which is the moment after a, a heartbreaking loss, and even just the the days that follow or weeks that follow. How you know I've just lost a, a really uh, big match in my career, whatever level my my career is at. After let's say I was winning two sets to love, or or even one set and a break, or something like that. And uh, I'm down and I'm struggling to get back on the practice court. And, and, uh, and I may even mention the retirement word. That's how frustrated I am. How would you deal with something like that, Josh? Yeah, I, th- I think oftentimes right after a, a tough match or maybe it's after a string of tough matches, um, those sorts of thoughts can start to come up. And, you know, I, I think there's there's different ways to approach it. I mean, I think, um, you know, players should really try to connect to their why, you know, why am I, why am I playing the sport? Why am I dedicating, you know, time and money or resources um, effort towards playing tennis when I could be, you know, spending those time and resources elsewhere. Right. So I think ideally a player has that, you know, a tennis player has that their why defined ahead of time. Where it's like, okay, this I know why I'm doing this. I know why I'm putting in this work. I know why I love tennis. And then when we have a bad loss, and it's going to happen to everybody. Everybody's going to have those painful losses at some point. Then hopefully if we have that nice foundation, it's a little bit easier to process that. But it, but you know, it can still hurt a lot. And we, again, we see that with, with top players as well. And I think, yeah, big trying to go back to, you know, why am I doing this? Trying to go back to, you know, why is this important? Am I doing this for me? Is this something, you know, am I trying to maximize my potential? Is it because I enjoy it? I enjoy the people that I'm around when I play tennis. You know, is it for some other reason? Um, but, But really being clear about what are my reasons for playing? What motivates me? What do I enjoy about it? Um, Hopefully that work has been done ahead of time. So there's that nice foundation that's been laid. But if not, I think there, there is the opportunity to do it afterwards. I think sometimes tennis players reflect on their matches maybe a little bit too soon. Um, and this is something I see a lot. You know, somebody has a loss and then 10, 15 minutes later, they're already talking about it and analyzing it. And I think we need time to digest we need time to digest, to, to think about it, and to put it behind us. And I see this a lot with junior players, and sometimes junior players that I work with, where they have, they, they play a match, they win or they lose, and then that car ride home, that car ride home with their parents after the match can be, can be tough. You know, the, the parents are watching from the outside. They, they have a lot of thoughts. And, yeah, the, you know, sometimes there's, that can lead to disagreements or that can lead to a player feeling like, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. This isn't worth it. And I think there's a lot of emotion right in the moment and right after a match. So I think giving yourself some time to process it and digest it first can be really helpful. And then really trying to be clear about, you know, what are my reasons? What are some of those bigger, as you said, John, what are some of those bigger picture 
um, ideas that I have with the sport in terms of my motivation, my love for the sport. Um, you know, what are some of my goals that I, that I have? Um, and I think being able to reconnect to those sorts of things, most of the time leads to a player realizing why they're doing this in the first place and continuing to continuing to play. Do you, what are some of the telltale signs, Josh, that you might look for, um, with a player that's maybe feeling it a bit more than normal. Um, I, I can think of two very recent examples, two extremely high-profile examples, uh, with Carlos Alcaraz at the French Open semi-final against uh, uh, Novak Djokovic and also Ange Jabeur in the Wimbledon final. I, I think there was that they, they seemed to me to be two very different kinds of anxiety. You could put them on a scale and say they were equal. But the, the way they manifested themselves and the reason they came about were for very different reasons. Uh, I, I felt that with um, that with uh, Carlos, he was just jumpy. He's a jumpy kind of character anyway. If you ever see him bouncing into the press conference, he, he doesn't seem like the coolest customer in the world. But then when he's on the tennis court, 99.9% of the time he is. However, in that French Open semi-final, there did seem to be an extra anxiety. And I'm just somebody who's watched tennis for 30 or 40 years, and I'm just processing this, oh, this is something a bit different. He, I know he's won the US Open, so we think he, we, he's been there, worn it. But no, this is now Novak Djokovic, and this is Roland Garros, and there's a, there's a different level of hype now. And, and, I, and I, I felt that as he was walking out. Now, feelings often deceive us, and, and they can often be wrong. As it turned out, he admitted to those anxieties in the press conference afterwards, which, by the way, Josh, I actually thought was was a good thing. I actually think that might help him come through the moment that, that he goes, rather than, because most people want to hide it, especially when we've got this adversarial nature of a sport. We don't want to give our opponents any clues about how we might be feeling. But um, but he was quite upfront with it. I think that helped the healing process for him, perhaps all the way to the Wimbledon title. Angebur was very different. It wasn't a jumpiness. It was a kind of, not that she didn't want it. She wanted it really badly. But in a way, it manifested itself in a longer, drawn-out lethargy at times, heavy kind of performance. And I remember talking in commentary during the match that it sort of mirrored the sort of cloudy and heavy nature. The roof was closed and it was just very, yeah, sort of like this. And and with her, I think it was probably... This was a this is a buildup of tension for weeks, months, and maybe even years, and maybe even some of those other Grand Slam final defeats as well. I mean, what are what are your thoughts on those two things, and what would you what would you suggest to either player to to get through that if they were to come up there again in the future? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up both of those examples. I mean, I think with Alcaraz, yeah, I mean, I think he he ran into a bit of bad luck. You you could say in a certain way that his you know he was yeah. at it was a very high profile match, right? I think there's a lot of people watching, you know, eager to see what was going to happen in this in the semifinal, and they were to set all, and his body essentially let out on him. I mean, he he you know that third and fourth set, he really wasn't able to play anywhere near his capability. Um, you know, due to that cramping. And, and he, he did talk about how, you know, the anxiety and the, the moment really led to those sorts of physical symptoms that he was experiencing. Um, and I, I definitely want to get to, to the Ans Jabor piece, but I think cool. for somebody like that, he seemed to have a way to put it behind him, right? He, I, I'm sure it was incredibly difficult for him, 
Um, you know, this was a huge moment, huge opportunity um, to, yeah, to, to beat Djokovic, to get to, you know, uh, a Roland Garros final, but managed to put it behind him, managed to, you know, win his first um, grass court title, you know, sh- shortly after that. And then mm-hmm. obviously won Wimbledon. Um, beating Djokovic in five sets, which is, you know, no, no small feat. So he seemed to be able to maybe reconnect with some other goals. And I don't know if his goal was winning Wimbledon. I don't think it could have been. I mean, I, I think he, he only had, had played a few grass court tournaments, you know, in, in his career up to that point. So it didn't seem like that was necessarily his goal, but he did seem to have a way to put it behind him. He recognized this is the situation almost like within a, you know, in the micro, you know, within a match, I'm playing a point. I double fault or I miss an easy shot. It's going to happen to everybody, right? Can we put that behind us? But can we put bigger things behind us? Like this disappointing defeat. Okay. I, you know, I was one set all against Djokovic in a grand, in a, you know, grand slam semifinal. And then I, you know, I essentially couldn't play after that. Okay. This is not what I would have wanted, but I'm able to put it behind me. And, you know, I think Ans Jabor, you know, maybe, if I'm, you know, just speculating, you know, it's her third um, major, major final. And, you know, she hasn't won, you know, she, she's over three at, at this point, but there's, you know, she's, she's in good company with, with some other players that have, you know, lost their first few major finals. I mean, Andy Murray comes to mind. I think Agassi comes to mind. I think Chris ever um, was, was also in that same boat. There's, there's, there's some other... as well, I think maybe, and yep. maybe even Jana Novotna as well have all got over the over the level, if you like. A- absolutely, and and I think she talked about that, right? I think she talked about that, and I think, um, you know, how a player moves on after a a really tough defeat is, you know, I, I don't think there's necessarily a formula to it. I think some, I think for a lot of people, taking a little bit of time off can be really beneficial. Um, you know, spending some time where, whether that's with your family or whether that's, you know, just sort of disconnecting from the sport and maybe you're, you know, hanging out at the beach for a little bit, you know, that some of these pro players do, um, wh- whatever it is. But I think, yeah, having a little bit of time to maybe get your mind off of tennis and maybe it's not, I'm, you know, rushing right back to the practice court right after. Um, but yeah, giving yourself a little bit of time, I think can be helpful, um, I think going through some sort of reflection process um, is helpful for all levels of tennis players. You know, I think that's something that, uh, especially at the non-professional level, people don't maybe necessarily do as much as they could, but really going through a process and maybe that's something that they do by them. People can do by themselves or they can do it with a coach or, you know, for a junior player, they could do it with their parent, but, you know, being able to really think about, you know, what did I do well out there? Even if I lost, what are certain things that I want to be able to replicate in the future? Okay, what are some things that I want to improve upon? You know, things that maybe didn't go as well out there, but I want to improve upon. Okay, what did I learn from this experience? So I think even those three very simple questions can help to put things into perspective. You know, I think after a loss, it can feel like everything was negative, right? It can feel like nothing went well. So I think being able to put things into perspective, understand that, there was positive out there. There was negative. Sometimes it comes down to just a couple of points. You know, that's how tennis works. Sometimes one player wins more points over the course of a match and, and loses. Um, but yeah, being able to put things into perspective by asking some of these, you know, questions um, 
And yeah, and then, you know, getting to a point, as I said before, where we can hopefully reconnect to some of those bigger picture things, our philo- our personal philosophy about the sport, our motivation, our love for the sport, our our goals, our next steps, what continues to excite us. And, can, and then, you know, when the time is right, maybe it's after a few days or whatever, maybe it's after a few weeks, you know, starting to reconnect to that and getting back on that grind. Of course, with those two players, there's the there's a different clock. We we're talking about clocks earlier of a different kind with those two players that probably help and hinder one or the other. With with Carlos Alcaraz, there's um, don't worry, there's Grand Slams to come, and you're going to be in another ten, twenty, thirty, forty big tournaments and big matches in the next coming years. Whereas, unfortunately, for somebody like Ons, you know, there's a, let's say the, the clock of a different kind is 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 ticking, which is I, I think that does help help and hinder you after the defeat. It's like I don't know if I'm ever going to get another opportunity like this. Whereas with with somebody with the level of talent, but also his age, Carlos, maybe that helps. I I actually also want to come to another point as well, uh, which is kind of the opposite end of the scale, where we had Carlos Alcaraz and Bird just wanting this too much in a way and therefore affecting their performances. But sometimes I see players, particularly lower down the rankings perhaps, but but anyway, but just whatever. And they, I don't know, sometimes I get a sense of them maybe being okay with losing a bit too much and, and maybe they're just like, they're, they're too deferential to an opponent. So I was thinking of Carlos going up against Novak and thinking, you know, he's affected by this mammoth on the other side of the, the court. And I've used the word mammoth twice in this podcast and maybe never again. But um, and, and he's affected in that particular way, but he still desperately wants it. It's not like he's being intimidated. It's just affecting him. It's like, oh, this is Novak. But sometimes I think other people are, are going into matches against particularly the big three that they're just sort of happy to be there. And it's like, oh, I might win a few games and uh, and I'll. And I, I sometimes wonder if maybe there was a set there for them or maybe there was even a chance to win the match if they had a different sort of mentality. How would you, how, let's say I'm you know, playing my biggest hero in tennis. How would you talk to me before this match to try and say, hey, listen, I know he's your biggest hero, but. Yeah, I, I, I would say I've had the same sort of observation about about certain players, you know, and I think that we, we see this at the professional level and we see this at, at all levels um, where, yeah, th- there's certain people and maybe we build them up in our head, you know, maybe it's Novak or maybe it's the best player at the park or the best player at the tennis club um, or the best player in your group, right. Or, or whatever it is. And we sort of maybe build them up as, you know, as, as if they're completely unbeatable, as if there's no way we could beat this person as if they don't have any flaws or weaknesses in their game. Um, but ultimately that's not true, but I think, you know, it, it can be a real challenge against these types of players. Um, you know, they're, it, they can have this concept of locker room power. There's a David Samuel who coaches Liam Brody and has coached other, you know, top, you know, ATP players and WTA players in the past. Um, talks about this concept of locker room power of how, you know, certain players and Novak would be a prime example, have this, this locker room power and have this sort of aura around them where they they feel maybe unbeatable and yeah. And, 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 and that rubs off on the people around them. And I think there's, there are some players who they go up against a player like that and they think about hey this is a this is a real challenge and a real opportunity in front of me and let's see what can happen and i think other players 
go into a situation like that and it, they have more of a threat based mentality where it's like, okay, I, I hope, I hope I don't lose six Oh six Oh today. Right. I, I hope I don't get crushed. I hope I don't, you know, that would be so embarrassing. And I think on one side of things, I'm thinking about the challenge or the opportunity in front of me. Hey, wouldn't I, I have this fantastic player that I'm facing today. Let's see what I can do against this player. Let's see how I match up. Let's see if I can, you know, really try to push this player and, you know, give myself the best possible chance. And on the other side, there's that threat-based way of thinking where it's, you know, thinking about what could go wrong, thinking about, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's embarrassment, whether it's about losing, whether it's a lack of pride. You know, I think for a lot of players, um, they're thinking about things like rankings or ratings or, you know, things like that. And, and things like that can get in their head where they're thinking, okay, if I, if I play against this player today and I lose, how's that going to impact my ranking or my rating? Um, and I know we have different, you know, different rating systems around the world. There's UTR, there's world tennis number, there's, you know, different things like that. But I think things like that can get in your head because it, it, you know, it, it causes somebody to get into, you know, thinking more about loss aversion and okay, I'm trying to avoid losing. I'm trying to avoid that embarrassment or that defeat. And maybe I even, assume it's going to happen kind of like what you were talking about you know i maybe i assume it's going to happen before i even go in and i i see i think there's even top 10 players in the world and mm. you know who after a defeat to the number one or a top three player um they will sort of you can sort of hear it in the press conference that maybe they didn't fully believe that they could do it going in that they you know they say hey i did my best but ultimately that's that's Alcaraz, that's Carlos, or that's Novak, or that's Iga. Um, but, you know, I, I think there are other players who, yes, you know, they're not at the top of the rankings, but they, they have the belief that, that they can, on any, on any particular day, beat some of these people. And I think those are the ones, those are the players that are more likely to do it. So I, I think it's, it's interesting. And, I, and you mentioned the press conferences, John, and I think we can, you know, I think we, there's a, often a lot of interesting takeaways from those press conferences um, in, in terms of, you know, you can often really get a, a sense of a player's self-belief and, yeah, and, and you know, their, their confidence level and do they really think that, not not do they think that they will win because we can't know that, but do they think that they can? Do mm. they think that it is possible and that they can do it on that particular day? Josh, where do you stand uh, on anger in um and, and frustration i guess in, in sport but i guess in particular individual sports like tennis it, can it be a good thing is it always a bad thing is it sometimes good is it sometimes bad i mean for example the person who's happy to take the defeat probably isn't going to get that angry and they're going to walk off court and they're going to give a nice press conference afterwards but they do admit that it's novak or whatever you say um but they have just lost two and one or whatever um, whereas in a way you could say, well, you know, I wish they were a bit more angry. Uh, I, I remember a football player called, uh, Eric Cantona. He was very, uh, very temperamental, but people used to say, if you take away that, that level of anger from him, he wouldn't be the, the same guy, the same character, the same player. Um, so where, where is the, you know, um, Novak Djokovic is arguably when he's on the court demonstrating some of the most angry signs we see. And yet. We, we, we generally look at anger as being a, a weakness in like that this guy's not going to perform best in the most crucial moments because he's too tense. And yet Novak Djokovic um, 
is, is somebody arguably one of the best, if not the best pressure player on the tour. Um, so what, where do we, what, how do we view this? And, uh, you know, one of your players is smashing a racket. What, or, what would you, how would you view that? I think it's a great, I think it's a great question. I think, I, I think I can see both sides of it. I mean, I think first of all, when, when I see a player who is angry, that does to, to some extent, not, not fully to some extent, it does say that they, that they care, that they care, that they're competitive. And I think there's a big difference between being competitive and being a great competitor. And we can maybe talk about, about that. Cause I think there's some, some key differences there, but it, it means that they're competitive. They care means that they don't want to lose. And I think that there's a lot of positives about all that. Um, on the other side of things, I think for the vast majority of people, anger can take you further away from the best version of your game. I think it can be a big distraction. You know, we talked about having some sort of system, some sort of process in between points. And if I'm spending that 20 seconds that I have in between points, just angry and upset with myself, the chance of me playing a, a quality next point goes down. And I think that's true of the vast majority of people. Are there people that can play, that can get really angry and play great? Yeah. Novak comes to mind. Somebody like John McEnroe comes to mind. You know, I think that there definitely are examples, but I think for a lot of people, it that anger can be a big distraction. That anger can actually make it tough to to think clearly out there and, and really tough to to play your best tennis. So I think you know, for most people, you know, we, we it's not that we want to just completely take it away because then I think if we completely take away that anger, then maybe we get to that point of, you know, not caring or assuming we're going to lose or, you know, that sort of thing. But I think instead we want to be able to channel it. We want to be able to channel it. Even somebody like Novak, he, I think he lets it out at times, but Mm -hmm. most, the vast majority of the time he's, he's pretty calm. He's, you know, he's, he's, it's not like he's yelling at himself and throwing and breaking rackets into the net post all the time that comes out at times, definitely. But he seems to almost do that when he needs to, when he's frustrated with himself or he needs to somehow change up the dynamic when, when things are smooth, you know, when he's playing well and it's smooth sailing and he's, he's up a set and a break. We don't, we don't see that. It's just when he needs to somehow fire himself up. So I think for, for most players, you know, it's about not about just completely turning off the anger, but it's about how can we channel it and how can we use that anger to make us more motivated and more focused rather than anger being something that, you know, engulfs us and, and causes us to, you know, be completely distracted where, you know, in between points, if I'm playing you, John, I want to be focused on what am I doing in this next point against you, right? Where, if I'm serving, okay, where do I want to serve and how can I try to set up my strengths? Let's say I have a, a good forehand. Right. Okay. How can I serve and, you know, maybe target your weakness and try to set up my forehand and set up the point the way that I want to? If I would rather be focused on that than focused on why am I playing so badly? Why is the score the way that it is? Why did my opponent make that line call three points ago? You know, I, I think, it, I think example A, that player is going to tend to play a lot better because they're focused on the next point and what they need to do rather than letting their anger sort of take over. Um, let's go with one or two more if you, if you're okay for a few more minutes, uh, Josh, um, 
You mentioned this difference between competitive and competitor. Can you elaborate on that? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So, you know, being competitive, the, the way that I would define these terms is being competitive is I want to win. I want to win. I don't want to lose. I don't like to lose. I want to win. I want to be better than the people around me. Um, being a great competitor is am I doing all of the things that put me in the best possible position to make that happen? Do I have the type of attitude that I need to give myself the best chance to win? Am I doing everything off the court to give myself the best chance to win in terms of my training, my nutrition, my sleep, my hydration? You know, how am I talking to myself? How is my self-talk on the court? Am I, you know, am I doing whatever I can do to make sure that my self-talk stays you know, in an effective place so that it's helping me so that those words that I'm using with myself are helping me when I'm out there. Um, you know, how is my decision making? You know, so all of the, I like to think of the concept of controlling the controllables and focusing on, you know, what can we actually control and really trying to focus on those areas. And to me, if we're focusing on those controllable pieces, then we're giving ourselves the best possible chance to be a great competitor because we're focusing on those, those factors that we can actually impact and control. And to me, it's okay. It's great if I want to, you know, if you want to win and you don't want to, you know, you don't want to lose to those people that you're facing. But what's even more important is, are you doing all the things that are needed to put yourself in the best possible chance to make that happen? Fair enough, Josh. Um, one more, uh, and that is about, uh, we sort of touched a little bit on, on some people accepting defeat too much. Um, we've also touched on that competitive competitor difference, but all of that brings me to um, something that Roger Federer said. Where Roger Federer was this this late teener, late teenager, where he was always getting frustrated, and you know all of the things that many of us saw when he became, you know, once he won Wimbledon, for example, and, and was on the tour. Most people that knew Roger in, as a fan, anyway, thought he was just this serene, calm individual and someone who could brush off pressure quite easily. And yet he was obviously very different uh, as a teenager. And something that Roger said was that it was actually sort of understanding that, that things will go wrong sometimes and accepting that things will go wrong was arguably the biggest lesson he learned at the most crucial point in his career, um, which is, is, yeah. So it's like, it's like, you know, I often say to people in life about, going for an interview for a job. And sometimes I think they're almost too optimistic. And I think to myself, I, I, I want to calm them down a little bit because you might not get the job. And what are you going to, that doesn't mean you don't give it a hundred percent and do all you can to prepare to, to put yourself in the best position to get that job, but also realize that there's a chance that you won't. And one, one other life example is when people get frustrated in traffic. I remember hearing a psychologist 20 years ago saying, well, part of the problem is, is they don't expect the traffic. It's, they don't anticipate it. It's, it's then it's, uh, it's, it's, it, they have seen traffic before and, and maybe they should have learned from that and, and, and just go, okay, this could happen. And, and by the way, even with the best preparation, I still could miss my flight, but putting some sort of perspective on that. And, um, yeah, I thought that was very interesting from Roger, and, and I think it was a good good life lesson as, as much as anything else. Uh, any thoughts on that, Josh? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, both in life and in tennis, we want to expect that all sorts of things can and will happen, right? If we expect, if we're, if we're going into a match and we expect that it's just going to be 
smooth sailing. It's just going to be a nice, you know, six, six love, six love uh, win for us. And, you know, then we're likely to be surprised when our opponent fights back and our opponent wins a game or wins multiple games. Um, there's a st- one of my favorite statistics that, that I like to bring up that, that I think illustrates an important point is from Craig O'Shaughnessy. And I, I think I, I think you um, have talked to him. Yeah. Uh, I, I saw that on your YouTube channel. Um, and w- he talks about how even the if we can look at the best players in the world, and ATP, WTA, over the course of a year, generally these top players in the world, the number one player, right? Iga Sviantek, uh, Carlos Alcaraz, you know, if we, we use both of them as, as examples, Generally, the, the best players in the world win about 55% of their points over the course mm-hmm. of a year. So they're not winning 80%, 90%. They're winning about 55% of their points. So what does that mean? 55% is not that much higher than 50%, right? They're winning about half of their points, a little bit more. They're losing mm-hmm. about half of their points. So we need to go into matches expecting that we're going to win a lot of points and we're going to lose a lot of points and that's okay. We don't have to be perfect to win a tennis match. We have to be a bit better than the person who's on the other side of the net. Right. So I think instead of going in with this perfectionist mentality, you're not expecting there to be any sort of ups and downs. We want to expect those ups and downs. We want to, you know, come up with a game plan for those ups and downs and then when they happen, then this is a great chance for us to use some of our, you know, mental skills, you know, for us to be resilient in these moments, rather than us being surprised by the traffic or us being surprised by our opponent hitting a nice serve. It's let's expect that. And then let's have a plan for how we want to handle that when it happens. And I think if, you know, just like Alcaraz or Sviantec loses 45% of their points, we'll say, um, yeah, when you go out and play your match, you're going to lose quite a few points too. So it's all about how do you handle that when it happens? Do you have a good system to put one point behind you and then really try to focus on that next point? If you're still focusing on that last point, you're in trouble. You're not going to be giving yourself that best possible chance. So making sure that you're you know, fully ready for that next point, I think is always, always should be the goal. Josh Berger, uh, thank you for joining us on Talking Tennis today. I love that expression about handling it when it happens. And uh, probably that's the the best takeaway, um, certainly from that latter segment, perhaps uh, tennis psychology in general. So big thanks for joining us today, Josh. Thank you, John. This was a lot of fun. Really enjoyed, uh, really enjoyed talking with you today. Yep, and we'll be uh, speaking to you and the rest of our audience again very soon. Thank you for joining Sports Social Podcast Network.